Section 43 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 43 chapter fifty nine part three the independent party among the commons exulted in their victory the whole authority of the nation they imagined was now lodged in their hands and they had a near prospect of moulding the government into that imaginary republic which had long been the object of their wishes they had secretly concurred in all encroachments of the military upon the civil power and they expected, by the terror of the sword, to impose a more perfect system of liberty on the reluctant nation. All parties, the king, the church, the parliament, the Presbyterians, had been guilty of errors since the commencement of these disorders. But it must be confessed that this delusion of the independents and republicans was, of all others, the most contrary to common sense and the established maxims of policy. Yet were the leaders of that party, Vane, Fines, St. John, Martin, the men in England the most celebrated for profound thought and deep contrivance, and by their well-coloured pretenses and professions, they had overreached the whole nation. To deceive such men would argue a superlative capacity in Cromwell, were it not that besides the great difference there is between dark, crooked counsels and true wisdom, an exorbitant passion for rule and authority will make the most prudent overlook the dangerous consequences of such measures as seem to tend in any degree to their own advancement the leaders of the army having established their dominion over the parliament and city ventured to bring the king to hampton court and he lived for some time in that palace with an appearance of dignity and freedom such equability of temper did he possess that during all the variety of fortune which he underwent no difference was perceived in his countenance or behaviour and though a prisoner in the hands of his most inveterate enemies he supported towards all who approached him the majesty of a monarch and that neither with less nor greater state than he had been accustomed to maintain his manner which was not in itself popular nor gracious now appeared amiable from its great meekness and equality the parliament renewed their applications to him and presented him with the same conditions which they had offered at newcastle the king declined accepting them and desired the parliament to take the proposals of the army into consideration and make them the foundation of the public sentiment he still entertained hopes that his negotiations with the generals would be crowned with success though every thing in that particular daily bore a worse aspect most historians have thought that cromwell never was sincere in his professions 
and that having by force rendered himself master of the king's person and by fair pretences acquired the countenance of the royalists he had employed these advantages to the enslaving of the parliament and afterwards thought of nothing but the establishment of his own unlimited authority with which he esteemed the restoration and even life of the king altogether incompatible this opinion so much warranted by the boundless ambition and profound dissimulation of his character meets with ready belief though it is more agreeable to the narrowness of human views and the darkness of futurity to suppose that this daring usurper was guided by events and did not as yet foresee with any assurance that unparalleled greatness which he afterwards attained many writers of that age have asserted that he really intended to make a private bargain with the king a measure which carried the most plausible appearance both for his safety and advancement but that he found insuperable difficulties in reconciling to it the wild humours of the army the horror and antipathy of these fanatics had for many years been artfully fomented against charles and though their principles were on all occasions easily warped and eluded by private interest yet was some colouring requisite and a flat contradiction to all former professions and tenets could not safely be proposed to them it is certain at least that cromwell made use of this reason why he admitted rarely of visits from the king's friends and showed less favour than formerly to the royal cause the agitators he said had rendered him odious to the army and had represented him as a traitor who for the sake of private interest was ready to betray the cause of god to the great enemy of piety and religion desperate projects too he asserted to be secretly formed for the murder of the king and he pretended much to dread lest all his authority and that of the commanding officers would not be able to restrain these enthusiasts from their bloody purposes intelligence being daily brought to the king of menaces thrown out by the agitators he began to think of retiring from hampton court and putting himself in some place of safety the guards were doubled upon him the promiscuous concourse of people restrained a more jealous care exerted in attending his person all under colour of protecting him from danger but really with a view of making him uneasy in his present situation these artifices soon produced the intended effect charles who was naturally apt to be swayed by counsel and who had not then access to any good counsel took suddenly a resolution of withdrawing himself though without any concerted at least any rational scheme for the future disposal of his person attended only by sir john berkeley ashburnham and legg he privately left hampton court and his escape was not discovered till near an hour after when those who entered his chamber found on the table some letters directed to the parliament to the general and to the officer who had attended him 
all night he travelled through the forest and arrived next day at titchfield a seat of the earl of southampton's where the countess dowager resided a woman of honour to whom the king knew he might safely entrust his person before he arrived at this place he had gone to the sea-coast and expressed great anxiety that a ship which he seemed to look for had not arrived and thence Barclay and Legg, who were not in the secret, conjectured that his intention was to transport himself beyond sea. The king could not hope to remain long concealed at Titchfield. What measure should next be embraced was the question. In the neighbourhood lay the Isle of Wight, of which Hammond was governor. This man was entirely dependent on Cromwell, at his recommendation he had married a daughter of the famous Hamden, who during his lifetime had been an intimate friend of Cromwell's, and whose memory was ever respected by him. These circumstances were very unfavourable, yet, because the governor was nephew to Dr. Hammond, the king's favourite chaplain, and had acquired a good character in the army, it was thought proper to have recourse to him in the present exigence when no other rational expedient could be thought of ashburnham and barclay were dispatched to the island they had orders not to inform hammond of the place where the king was concealed till they had first obtained a promise from him not to deliver up his majesty though the parliament and the army should require him but to restore him to his liberty if he could not protect him this promise, it is evident, would have been a very slender security, yet even without exacting it, Ashburnham imprudently, if not treacherously, brought Hammond to Titchfield, and the king was obliged to put himself in his hands, and to attend him to Carisbrook Castle, in the Isle of Wight, where, though received with great demonstrations of respect and duty, he was, in reality, a prisoner. Lord Clarendon is positive that the king, when he fled from Hampton Court, had no intention of going to this island, and indeed all the circumstances of that historian's narrative, which we have here followed, strongly favour this opinion. But there remains a letter of Charles's to the Earl of Laneric, secretary to Scotland, in which he plainly intimates that the measure was voluntarily embraced and even insinuates that if he had thought proper he might have been in jersey or any other place of safety perhaps he still confided in the promises of the generals and flattered himself that if he were removed from the fury of the agitators by which his life was immediately threatened they would execute what they had so often promised in his favour. Whatever may be the truth in this matter, for it is impossible fully to ascertain the truth, Charles never took a weaker step, nor one more agreeable to Cromwell and all his enemies. He was now lodged in a place removed from his partisans, at the disposal of the army, whence it would be very difficult to deliver him either by force or artifice and though it was always in the power of cromwell whenever he pleased to have sent him thither 
yet such a measure without the king's consent would have been very invidious if not attended with some danger that the king should voluntarily throw himself into the snare and thereby gratify his implacable persecutors was to them an incident peculiarly fortunate and proved in the issue very fatal to him cromwell being now entirely master of the parliament and free from all anxiety with regard to the custody of the king's person applied himself seriously to quell those disorders in the army which he had himself so artfully raised and so successfully employed against both king and parliament in order to engage the troops into a rebellion against their masters he had encouraged an arrogant spirit among the inferior officers and private men and the camp in many respects carried more the appearance of civil liberty than of military obedience the troops themselves were formed into a kind of republic and the plans of imaginary republics for the settlement of the state were every day the topics of conversation among these armed legislators royalty it was agreed to abolish nobility must be set aside even all ranks of men be levelled and a universal equality of property as well as of power be introduced among the citizens the saints they said were the salt of the earth an entire parity had place among the elect and by the same rule that the apostles were exalted from the most ignoble professions the meanest sentinel if enlightened by the spirit was entitled to equal regard with the greatest commander in order to wean the soldiers from these licentious maxims cromwell had issued orders for discontinuing the meetings of the agitators and he pretended to pay entire obedience to the parliament whom being now fully reduced to subjection he purposed to make for the future the instruments of his authority but the levellers for so that party in the army was called having experienced the sweets of dominion would not so easily be deprived of it they secretly continued their meetings they asserted that their officers as much as any part of the church or state needed reformation several regiments joined in seditious remonstrances and petitions separate rendezvouses were concerted and everything tended to anarchy and confusion but this distemper was soon cured by the rough but dexterous hand of cromwell he chose the opportunity of a review that he might display the greater boldness and spread the terror the wider he seized the ringleaders before their companions held in the field a council of war shot one mutineer instantly and struck such dread into the rest that they presently threw down the symbols of sedition which they had displayed and thenceforth returned to their wonted discipline and obedience cromwell had great deference for the counsels of ireton a man who having grafted the soldier on the lawyer the statesman on the saint had adopted such principles as were fitted to introduce the severest tyranny 
while they seemed to encourage the most unbounded license in human society. Fierce in his nature, though probably sincere in his attentions, he purposed by arbitrary power to establish liberty, and in prosecution of his imagined religious purposes, he thought himself dispensed from all the ordinary rules of morality, by which inferior mortals must allow themselves to be governed. From his suggestion, Cromwell secretly called at Windsor a council of the chief officers, in order to deliberate concerning the settlement of the nation, and the future disposal of the king's person. In this conference, which commenced with devout prayers, poured forth by Cromwell himself and other inspired persons, for the officers of this army received inspiration with their commission, was first opened the daring and unheard-of counsel of bringing the king to justice and of punishing by a judicial sentence their sovereign for his pretended tyranny and maladministration. While Charles lived, even though restrained to the closest prison, conspiracies they knew and insurrections would never be wanting in favour of a prince who was so extremely revered and beloved by his own party, and whom the nation in general began to regard with great affection and compassion. To murder him privately was exposed to the imputation of injustice and cruelty, aggravated by the baseness of such a crime, and every odious epithet of traitor and assassin would, by the general voice of mankind, be indisputably ascribed to the actors in such a villainy. Some unexpected procedure must be attempted, which would astonish the world by its novelty, would bear the semblance of justice, and would cover its barbarity by the audaciousness of the enterprise. Striking in with the fanatical notions of the entire equality of mankind, it would ensure the devoted obedience of the army, and serve as a general engagement against the royal family, whom, by their open and united deed, they would so heinously affront and injure. This measure, therefore, being secretly resolved on, it was requisite, by degrees, to make the Parliament adopt it, and to conduct them from violence to violence, till this last act of atrocious iniquity should seem in a manner wholly inevitable. The king, in order to remove those fears and jealousies, which were perpetually pleaded as reasons for every invasion of the constitution, had offered, by a message sent from Carisbrook Castle, to resign during his own life the power of the militia and the nomination to all the great offices. Provided that, after his demise, these prerogatives should revert to the crown. But the Parliament acted entirely as victors and enemies, and in all their transactions with him paid no longer any regard to equity or reason. At the instigation of the independence and army, they neglected this offer, and framed four proposals, which they sent him as preliminaries, and before they would deign to treat, they demanded his positive assent to all of them. 
by one he was required to invest the parliament with all the military power for twenty years together with an authority to levy whatever money should be necessary for exercising it and even after the twenty years should be elapsed they reserved a right of resuming the same authority whenever they should declare the safety of the kingdom to require it by the second he was to recall all his proclamations and declarations against the parliament and acknowledge that assembly to have taken arms in their just and necessary defence by the third he was to annul all the acts and void all the patents of peerage which had passed the great seal since it had been carried from london by lord keeper littleton and at the same time renounce for the future the power of making peers without consent of parliament by the fourth he gave the two houses power to adjourn as they thought proper a demand seemingly of no great importance but contrived by the independents that they might be able to remove the parliament to places where it should remain in perpetual subjection to the army the king regarded the pretension as unusual and exorbitant that he should make such concessions while not secure of any settlement and should blindly trust his enemies for the conditions which they were afterwards to grant him he required therefore a personal treaty with the parliament and desired that all the terms on both sides should be adjusted before any concession on either side should be insisted on the republican party in the house pretended to take fire at this answer and openly inveighed in violent terms against the person and government of the king whose name hitherto had commonly in all debates been mentioned with some degree of reverence ireton seeming to speak the sense of the army under the appellation of many thousand godly men who had ventured their lives in defence of the parliament said that the king by denying the four bills had refused safety and protection to his people that their obedience to him was but a reciprocal duty for his protection of them and that as he had failed on his part they were freed from all obligations to allegiance and must settle the nation without consulting any longer so misguided a prince cromwell after giving an ample character of the valour good affections and godliness of the army subjoined that it was expected the parliament should guide and defend the kingdom by their own power and resolutions and not accustom the people any longer to expect safety and government from an obstinate man whose heart god had hardened that those who at the expense of their blood had hitherto defended the parliament from so many dangers would still continue with fidelity and courage to protect them against all opposition in this vigorous measure teach them not added he by your neglecting your own safety and that of the kingdom in which theirs too is involved to imagine themselves betrayed and their interests abandoned to the rage and malice of an irreconcilable enemy whom for your sake they have dared to provoke beware and at these words he laid his hand on his sword 
beware lest despair cause them to seek safety by some other means than by adhering to you who know not how to consult your own safety such arguments prevailed though ninety-one members had still the courage to oppose it was voted that no more addresses be made to the king nor any letters or messages be received from him and that it be treason for any one without leave of the two houses to have any intercourse with him the lords concurred in the same ordinance end of section forty three chapter fifty nine part three